This special episode of What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. Mighty Networks makes it easy to bring your content, courses, events, and community all under one digital roof. Now, you might be thinking that this is the wrong time to build a community online. Maybe you think you've missed the opportunity, or maybe you think your business isn't ready to bring people together like this. But I'm here to tell you that you are right on time. Your customers, clients, and members are looking to you to help them navigate their careers, learn new skills, build new practices, and turn a time of uncertainty into a moment of clarity and courage. This is the perfect time to start building a Mighty Network. Give it a try today by going to MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. Margin is space, the space between and around. There's the margin of a page, of course, and there's the margin around the border of a forest. There's also the margin in your business, the space between your revenue and your expenses. Most of us don't have nearly as much margin as we used to. At one point in our lives, we uttered the words, I'm bored, and our caregivers rolled their eyes and told us to go outside. The margin between planned activities, playdates, and bursts of play gave us an opportunity to feel that boredom. But when do we ever feel bored now? When are we ever faced with a lack of things to do or chores to take care of? Even in the midst of this great pause, margin feels tenuous. I've had countless conversations with people who fear returning to normal, and with it, the crush of things to do and places to go that squeeze all of the margin out of our lives and work. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how small business owners are building stronger businesses without the shoulds and supposed tos. I'm one of those people who feels anxious at the thought of losing the margin I'm now enjoying thanks to the forced change in my habits and patterns. My 12-year-old daughter is too. She loves cooking and crafting and finding endless ways to rearrange her Harry Potter Lego sets without the distraction of constantly coming up with things to do outside of the house. Margin has been really, really good for us. This month, we've been talking about how to work our plans, how to see a plan and its execution as a learning process, how to identify the working style that works for you, how to invite change into your plans. Margin is a key component of planning, but one that we rarely acknowledge. In fact, a lack of margin is one of the chief reasons we fail to follow through on our plans. We don't allow for margin at the start or the finish We don't leave margin between projects or items in a checklist. We certainly don't make room for error. And the result is that everything we do starts to feel rushed, harried, and full of anxiety. In episode 298, my friend Kate Strathman told me that she noticed she's more likely to cause harm when she's feeling urgency. We were talking about sales in that conversation, but I think this idea applies to many things, including planning. We've inherited a pattern of overscheduling, overplanning, and overcommitting, as well as technology that eliminates our margins and induces urgency, and with it, anxiety. We're taught to believe that more is better by cultural forces like rugged individualism and white supremacy, as well as our broken capitalist economic system. 
We try to tackle too many things at once. We think we can do things faster than we really can. We forget to factor in pre-existing commitments. We don't take stock of our resources before we start doling them out, both literally and figuratively. It's no wonder then that we so often feel the crunch when we're trying to stick to our plans. And when we're feeling the crunch, we're much more likely to take action that causes harm to ourselves, to others, and to our communities. Maybe we ignore our families or intimate relationships. Maybe we pull too many all-nighters. Maybe we resort to choices and tactics that damage the community or industry ecosystem we're a part of. Maybe we start to believe the horrible things we say about ourselves, how slow we are, how unprepared we are, how unskilled we are, and my personal go-to, how lazy I am. When we're constantly executing our plans in a state of urgency, we're exposing ourselves to all sorts of triggers and negative influences. So we cause harm, and then we quit the plan. That's not a helpful way to engage our work. It's not the state of mind you need to do creative and critical thinking. What could leaving more space in your plans do for you? And what would it mean about the choices you need to make? As you consider your answers to those questions, I'm thrilled to bring you the stories of three business owners who have been recommitting to margin in their own ways. You'll hear from photographer and podcaster Avon Marchese, business strategist Maiko Sakai, and mindset consultant Shulamit Berlevtov. While the details of their stories might be different than yours, I know these stories are going to feel familiar and could help you see your own experiences in a new way. Let's get started with photographer and podcaster Avon Marchese. Avon's story of margin starts with the sudden explosion of margin she had when the pandemic hit. Now, margin was no longer a reason to put off her big idea. Pay attention to how actually making her big idea happen helped her create a different sort of margin in her photography business when demand started to come back. Hey guys, Yvonne Marchese here. This year, I decided to launch the Late Bloomer Living podcast. Uh, The idea to do a podcast came to me when I was approaching 50. I had a breakthrough in my health and general outlook after doing a lot of self-helpy stuff. And I was suddenly feeling really excited about the next 30 odd years of my life. And that's when I got the idea to share stories of people who had reinvented themselves in midlife as a podcast to inspire others. So um, the thing is, is for over a year, I put it off because I was busy with my photography business. I have a husband and two busy teenagers. And here's the real reason. I didn't feel like I had accomplished enough in my life to speak as an expert. Big time imposter syndrome kicking in. Well, um, finally, I realized that this voice in my head telling me to do it just wasn't going away. So I decided that I would do the podcast not as an expert, but as someone on a journey. And the first thing I did to get it rolling was I outed myself to friends and family on Facebook in late December of 2019. And oh my gosh, I tell you, when I hit the send button on that post, my heart was thumping in my chest. I had flop sweats for about an hour afterwards. (laughs) Um, It made me feel like there was no turning back. And I actually think that was key. My two main challenges were a lack of time and money. I didn't have the money to spend to have someone produce the podcast for me, so I had to learn to do it myself. I had no idea how to produce a podcast or how I might make money while doing it, so I started by doing lots of research. 
I was already listening to tons of podcasts, so I knew what I liked, but I had a lot to learn about what it takes to actually do it. So I basically Googled everything and watched a lot of YouTube videos. I even had to learn how to build my own website in WordPress, which I did. Yay me. Um, Oh, and did I mention the time crunch? Normally... My photography business is slow in January and February. So when I posted in December, I thought I'd just take advantage of that slow time. But of course, now that I'd committed to doing this thing, I had more gigs than ever. (laughs) So it goes. And uh, can I just say, be careful what you wish for. In March, eh, we all know what happened, right? Well, with the COVID shutdown, I was suddenly not able to do photography sessions, so my time opened up. It was a mixed blessing for sure. Honestly, I think doing the podcast is what got me through this crazy year. It gave me something to focus on besides listening to the news and doom scrolling through social media. Uh, It gave me structure because I set myself up to work nine to five just as if it was a real job. Um, But I did give myself some time for walks when I was feeling low or overwhelmed, which came in waves. And something else that worked to keep me moving was doing meditation and yoga every morning, kept me in the mindset. And this is the year I learned how to ask for help. I've always erred on the side of trying to do everything myself, still struggling with that. But this year I worked with a couple of coaches and I scheduled phone calls with a couple of friends every week who kept cheering me on. Also, I used to feel like networking was a bad word, but I found two communities this year, including What Works, where I feel like I'm meeting these amazing and inspiring people that are becoming friends. Um... I'm still not making money on the podcast, but I'm focused on producing good content and building my audience, and I'm prepping a paid workshop. I have a ton of details to work out to get that done, but you know, based on what I did this year, I'm gaining confidence in my ability to figure it out as I go. So how has it helped me in my business? Well, honestly, it's probably ended up slowing me down in my photography business because it's taking my time and energy away from marketing that. But the trade-off has been huge. I mean, frankly, it's a great personal branding tool to do a podcast and having a strong personal brand is good for when you want to pivot your business. So there's that. And because it's forced me to get out and network, some photography jobs are actually coming from those new relationships. So there's that. Uh, Mostly, though, I've built a new confidence in myself, and it's left me with a feeling that I can do anything and learn anything, and I just love doing it. I love how Yvonne links this all back to confidence. Operating with no margin is exhausting, but it also warps our self-image and confidence in the work we do. Avon's podcast and the recalculation she made to keep up with it has helped her to return to her faith in herself. Next up, business strategist Maiko Sakai. Maiko shares a story of actually leaving a margin for error so that the outcome of your plan isn't as important as following through and learning from it. I am working on doing a proper launch for the program that I have. The backstory is that I've attempted to do a proper launch for God knows how many times, five times, six times, seven times in the past, and I could never go through with it for whatever reason. And the irony is that I can do this work for others all day, every day, 
24-7. I'm a business strategist, right? But I couldn't do this for myself. So I have five things that I am doing every single day to work the plan. The first thing that I worked on was to figure out why I couldn't go through with this process. Before I get to that though, the definition of doing a proper lunch in this context is to have enough lead time like 90 days out or 60 days out to plan everything out, execute most of them in advance to do a proper lunch. So that's the context. Okay, so the first thing is to figure out why I couldn't do that. It sounds simple, just do it, right? But I couldn't do it. And I had so much shame around the reason why I couldn't go through with it. And here's the reason. I had the thought that what if I put this much time and energy into this work for the next 60 days and no one shows up, that would suck. That was the belief that was holding me back. Because it's gonna suck, right? You, you put so much work into something and no one shows up. Yeah, no, it's gonna suck. But the second thing you know, that I worked on was to flip the script and see if I can own a new belief. So I've made a decision that the outcome doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if no one shows up. What matters is to go through this entire process so that I get to have that experience under my belt. Then I get to assess what I need to do next. If I don't do that, I'm never gonna know how that feels like or looks like. So I have to go through with it. And that's the objective, not to get too bogged down on the outcome. And the third thing that I've been doing is to find supportive ways to believe that new belief. Because let me just tell you, every morning when I wake up, I don't believe in that belief at all. None whatsoever. It's kind of like Groundhog Day, the movie, that I have to go back to square one every single day and start all over again from the place where I believe no one's going to show up and it's going to suck to the other side where it doesn't matter. I'm still game. I'm going to do this. And that's the work that takes the most time. So the supportive things, the activities that I'm doing is um, journaling. That's one thing. Um, listening to podcast episodes that are supportive or reading up on books or having a vision board on my Pinterest, that sort of stuff. I have to do this every single day. It's not that structured, but I do those activities. And the fourth thing is finally doing the work. So if I don't do the three things that I just listed in the beginning every single day, then this doesn't really matter because doing the work is the easiest. For example, I've created a quiz for my business. I'm warming up to my email list. All those things are just things and it's not the hardest part. Yet I still feel scattered and I feel like I don't know what I'm doing, even though I know what I'm doing. So I continuously have to work on my mindset. And the last thing, the fifth thing that I have been doing is to pause and really acknowledge the progress that I am making. Then I feel less scattered and I feel less, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. So these are the five things that I do every single day that I never done before. It feels different this time around that I, because of the fact that I do these five things every single day. And I am actually excited about the, what the outcome is going to be, even though that I decided that it doesn't matter. I'm not attached to it, but I still feel motivated every day to do 
the work. By detaching her follow-through from the outcome of the plan, Maiko created room for error. By not letting the anxiety of failure get between her and actually working the plan, she actually made it less likely that the plan will fail. Finally, we've got a story from mindset consultant Shulamit Bear Levtov. Shuli's story is no doubt a familiar one. Finding herself burnt out both mentally and physically, Shuli was forced to make room for margin. I'll let her explain. My project was to recover from the nine major stressors I've experienced in the past 24 months, only one of which was the COVID pandemic. I've been affected by uh, personal issues in my family, financial issues in my business, logistical issues in my business, personal financial issues. So there was a there was a lot going on in the past 24 months. So how did I make my plan? Well, the first part of that plan was kind of seat of the pants. My therapist saw the signs and said I needed to take a leave uh, from work, which I did. And that was a whole plan of its own. I won't get into here. But um, when he pointed it out to me, I knew that as a trained therapist, my nervous system was overstimulated and that I was over capacity. And I knew that the antidote for that was to reduce stimulation as much as possible. And also from a spiritual point of view, I was suffering. And retreat is a concept from spiritual traditions that I took with me into my leave. So I kind of took the idea that I was going into retreat And so while I was on leave, I was on complete leave from everything, work in the business and on the business, as well as family. uh, And that allowed things to settle. It allowed me to feel the way I wanted to feel and see what reinforced or undermined that. I also took a hard look in that space, in that retreat space, at my values and my purpose and discovered a major personality trait of which I'd been unaware, but that had been undermining my connection with myself and my understanding of what I needed to be truly well and to thrive. So I took all that information and planned what I thought would allow me to continue to feel that way when I went back to work. And the guidance that came for me or the kind of point of reference uh, was the word sanctuary that gave me a name for the experience that I needed. And I hit on the idea of sanctuary time. And I made a commitment to myself that I was going to be sure to continue to have sanctuary time. And I also made the decision that I would fit my business in around my life and not the other way around. And so coming out of the month of stress leave, I went back to work and did pretty well for the first three weeks. But then Um, You know, some things knocked me off my plans, like unanticipated stressors that stimulated my nervous system, get me worked up. And then because I'm, I'm worked up about them, I allowed them to hijack my planned work time or my planned sanctuary time. I have inner challenges to what I call fake pressure to get things done. Like there are most of the stuff in my business is the deadlines they're self-imposed. You know, there's no, nobody's going to die. Nothing's going to end or collapse if I don't do it today and I end up doing it tomorrow. But that's, so that's why I call it that kind of fake pressure to get things done. Um, And I also worry that my business will fail and I'll starve if I open quote, don't work, close quote, meaning uh, in real terms, if I don't drive myself hard to produce and work, work, work. And then also excitement about projects that I'm working on. I get excited and that excited energy can carry me away and, you know, kind of roll over 
some of the larger considerations uh, that I need for sustainability and, you know, old habits of falling asleep to myself and to my needs. So in order to keep going, to keep committed to my plan, to keep on track with my plan, I do inner work every day that recognizes and validates these challenges and especially the habits of thinking that kind of hijack what I'm trying to do, hijack the project of sanctuary, providing myself with sanctuary and being sustainable. And I I recognize and validate these things so that I can find ease and then generate a holistic response to them that fits with these values of sustainability and sanctuary. Uh, But as an extrovert, really the, you know, because I'm super motivated by my connection with other people, my main strategy for staying on track with my plans is uh, interpersonal accountability. So I'm transparent about it with my peers and friends. And then also I specifically have three peer partnership meetings weekly for inner work. And I also hire professionals who are aligned with my values of sanctuary and sustainability who support me. Because I fundamentally believe that we're stronger with support and I'm 100% willing to get the help I need to stay on track. And that's the thing that makes the difference for me in staying committed to my plan and making sure it gets implemented. Sanctuary is such a beautiful word for this concept of margin. In fact, it might even be a better term. Sanctuary isn't just a place to rest. It's a place of safety, refuge, and support. Today, I want to encourage you to carve out some margin in your plans, to space things out, leave a buffer, even create a margin for error. But I think we'd all benefit from finding sanctuary in our lives and work too. How can you prioritize rest, safety, refuge every day? What habits could you lean into to offer that kind of support to yourself, to your business? I hope you've enjoyed this series on Working the Plan. I found it a really satisfying series to work on. Working the Plan is both an exercise in practical logistical execution and an experiment in discovering how your mind, as well as cultural forces and conditioning, get in your way. And I just love the opportunity to integrate those two kinds of work. Next month, our focus is on relationships. I'll be sharing what I've learned about nurturing your relationship to yourself and your business, to your customers, to your team, and to your colleagues through the lens of some of my favorite conversations from the last five years. Before you go, I wanted to let you know that the What Works Network is now accepting new members for a short time. If you're looking for a home to investigate topics like these, both from the tactical side and from the mindset side, the What Works Network is the place for you. When you join us, you get access to our Stronger Business Playbook, our global community of small business owners, our monthly deep dives into an area of business building, and our weekly business support events. Find out more about the What Works Network by going to explorewhatworks.com slash network. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was edited by Marty Seafelt. Our production assistants are Lou Blazer and Kristen Runvik. Special thanks to Shannon Paris for sourcing this month's stories and to Yvonne Marchese, Maiko Sakai, and Shulamit Berlevtov. Find links to learn more about them in our show notes. Want more of What Works? 
sign up for our free newsletter, What Works Weekly. Every Thursday, I share my reflections and ideas for building a stronger business, plus my picks for resources from around the web on marketing, management, mindset, planning, and more. Go to explorewhatworks.com slash weekly to sign up free of charge.